our mission is in three parts. To know Jesus, that's sort of like getting back to the basics. When you go back to school in the fall, you're getting back to the basics of things like math and English and science. Well, when you know Jesus, you're getting back to the basics. There's nothing more basic in this world that we can know than to know Jesus Christ because of who he is. He is the God who created us. And without knowing him, our whole lives are going to be off kilter and off direction. It, the, the beginning of wisdom, the scripture says, is knowing him. So the second part of our mission, though, flows right out of that. And that is loving others. And we've sort of uh, compared that to homecoming. Homecoming, school year, everybody, uh, school spirit, pep rallies, big football game, sort of draws the whole student body back together again. Well, when we come to know Christ, one of the first things that happens is his love begins to, to, to cause us to want to love one another. And we become a church family that is to demonstrate to the world a kind of sincere, authentic love that even goes past imperfections and flaws. And we really, really, really do live lives of loving each other. It's not just words, it's real. Because Christ has shared his real love with us. And then that sets it up for the third thing. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The finals. The dreaded finals that come at the end of the semester. Well, finals are all about the teacher giving a test to see how well the students have learned what the teacher's been teaching. Uh, we have Jesus as our teacher. And when we know him, when we begin to love each other's, other, the thing that Jesus really wants all of his teaching of us, where he wants that to go finally, is into serving the world. Serving the world is the final test of whether our faith in Jesus Christ is real whether it is alive or not. Because what was the mission of Jesus when he came? His mission was to pour out his life for the world, to pour out his life for people. And if Jesus Christ and faith in him is real in you, he's real in you and I, then we're going to be doing, we're going to be living out that same mission just like he did. So we could call that faith followed with actions. We're going to talk about faith and actions this morning. Now, to do that, you know, I want to introduce you this morning to a, one of Jesus' half-brothers. Were you aware that Jesus had a half-brother? Uh, his name was James. In fact, Jesus had four half-brothers, and he had some sisters, too. We don't often think about that, but uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, says that next, Jesus was the oldest, now, Jesus was a half-brother because his, his mother was Mary, just like with all the other sons and daughters. But Jesus' father was a unique situation, the virgin birth and the heavenly father and all of that. But Joseph and Mary were the parents of all the rest of the kids in the family. James, next to Jesus, was the second. He was the second oldest. Their names were Joseph and Simeon and Judas, not the one that betrayed Jesus. And then it says Jesus had some sisters. So there could have been eight or ten in the household of Joseph and Mary as the kids were all growing up. This is sort of a sideline, and I think I have a couple sermons on this, but what would, have, what would it have been like to grow up in the same household with Jesus? 
<laughs> okay. There's some interesting ramifications to that. But we do get one surprising insight into the family relationships when Jesus, at age 30, began his ministry by revealing that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the promised Savior, who had been sent by the Father into the world to bring redemption, really saying that he was the Son of God come into the world in, in flesh. But you know what? The Scripture tells us in John chapter 7, verse 5, that even his own brothers did not believe in him. So that tells us something about James' background. James came to Jesus out of doubt. Jesus, uh, James had been a skeptic of Jesus. Now, how could that possibly be with Jesus as your sibling? Well, think about it a second. I don't know. But how would it be growing up in a household where the oldest sibling was, was truly perfect? Okay? Could that have created some envy? I don't know. I'm not going to get all psychological on this. But I... You know, stop and think about that for a second. Anyway, there was some sort of a division. There was some sort of skepticism that came into the household of Jesus himself. Um, and James was stumbling, for whatever reason, over what he heard Jesus saying about who he was. So how did James eventually come to faith in Jesus? Well, Paul gives us just a little hint of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7. And I want to read these verses for you. They're very short. Paul is just sort of giving a, sort of a, a, a very quick little summary of the, of the essential points of what the message of Jesus is. This is what he says. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. And here it is. Here's the, here's the basics of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, just as the scripture said. But it didn't end there. And he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And then he was seen by Peter. And then he was seen by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers all at one time, most of whom are still alive. And Paul said that because if you want to check this out, just go and talk to some of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus in his resurrected body. There's a lot of them still alive. But then he goes on and he says uh, this, verse 7, then he was seen by James. So after his resurrection, Jesus made it a point to specially interact with James and demonstrate before his eyes that he was indeed who he said he was. And then James became a man with a reputation for intense faith. In fact, one of the nicknames that was given to James was camel knees uh, because he prayed so much. His knees got calloused and hard, and they, they started calling him, I don't know if they called him old camel knees, but they called him camel knees. Uh, and at age, or in AD 62, James gave testimony to the depth, depth of his faith by being martyred for his faith, put to death for his faith. So he went all the way from skepticism 
to having an intense faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to throw something in here. You may be here this morning and struggling with a little skepticism like James did. A lot of people do. I just want to encourage you this morning. You know, there's two kinds of skeptics. There are the closed skeptics who don't even want to pursue any truth, who just shut Jesus out. I mean, I'm not even going to consider that. Okay, that's one kind of skepticism. The other kind of skepticism is an honest skepticism. You know what? I'm searching. I'm looking. I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to pursue this. I'm going to think this through. And my prayer is that, uh, you know, if our hearts are closed like an iron door, God can be knocking on our hearts, and he will, but it's going, to be, it's going to be a little more intense battle right there. Although God will go after the hardest core skeptics, the Apostle Paul was one of them. Uh, but you know what? My prayer is that you'll come to the place where you will begin to search and say, you know, what if Jesus is who he said he was? What if, he, what if, what if that's true? And in one place you could do that would be, be begin to read the, uh, carefully read with an open mind, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those first four books of what we call the New Testament, just begin to read that. And then if you want some other help on the side, uh, you can either you can buy the book called uh, The Case for the Real Jesus by uh, Lee Strobel. Or if you don't like to read that much, you don't have time to read, you can go on YouTube. And the same thing is on YouTube. Plug it in and listen to it. But search. Search. And you know what? God will honor the searching, the, the, the honest skeptic. God will honor that search. If you, if you begin to seek for him. Okay. So James, the former skeptic, ends up writing about the most, he ends up giving us the most powerful statement about faith that you can read anywhere in the New Testament. And I like the way that pastor and author Warren Wiersbe summarizes what James says here about faith. James, in this chapter we're going to look at, we're going to walk through right now, chapter two, uh, James sort of gives us three kinds of faith, two of which are very unhealthy one of which is, is very healthy. Let's take a look at those very quickly as we walk through. First of all, let's talk about dead faith, what we could call dead faith. Verse 14, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say that you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save you? And they, James gives us sort of a humorous illustration. He says, suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing, they're completely destitute, and you say to them uh, in a cheerful voice, a kind voice, goodbye, have a great day, stay warm and eat well. Send them off with a great greeting, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So is that real faith, James is saying? No, because when, when we place real faith in Jesus Christ, something happens deep inside of our lives. We come to faith in Jesus Christ by confessing our sins to him and saying, Lord, I, I have sinned. Forgive me of my sins. When we do that, Jesus Christ comes in and he takes up residence. He lives in our spirit. And so... His desire to reach out and care for people becomes our desire. His love becomes our love because he begins to live inside of us. And, and so faith, genuine faith, real faith, 
is going to want to reach out just like Jesus does and meet the need of that other person. So James goes on and says in verse 17, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Let's, let me elaborate a little bit more on that. I think what James is saying is that uh, dead faith is just intellectual faith. It, it would be this kind of faith. Yeah, I grew up in church. I've been in church every day. I've been in church all my life. I've heard five million sermons. Um, I believe Jesus. I believe he, he died. I believe he died for our sins. I believe that he rose from the dead. I go to church on Easter. Uh, all, you can believe all that stuff mentally, intellectually. But it never, it's never touched your heart. It's never gotten outside of your brain <laughs> into your life, into your heart. Uh, that's dead faith. Okay, James says there's a second kind of faith. And we could call that demonic faith. Verses 18 and 19. He says, now someone might argue. Some people have faith, others have good deeds. So, so James is saying, some people might argue, well, you could have faith, you can have belief, but no, but no good deeds. You can separate those two from your actions, faith and actions. But then James says right back, I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? And then he says, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. In other words, he's saying real faith is going to have an evidence that flows out from it. Verse 19, you say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. And then he adds this, even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So, Think about what he's saying here. The demons of hell, who are those invisible, depraved, evil beings that go about the earth carrying out Satan's designs for humanity. Even the demons of hell have a profound belief. I guess you could say a profound faith in the reality of God. There is no demon who doubts the reality of God. There is no skeptical demon. They all know that God exists. Uh, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. In Luke chapter 4, verse 31, we have an account of a person that was possessed with a demon, and, and, and this demon engages Jesus in conversation. And this is what the demon says to Jesus. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then Luke chapter 8, verse 36, another person who was possessed with a demon says, speaks and says this to Jesus, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And so what, you know, what James is really telling us here is that the faith of demons even goes one step beyond that dead intellectual faith of the first kind we talked about. Because demons... They believe and they tremble. In other words, their faith has a response. Their faith has some emotion to it because they are trembling at the reality of the existence of Jesus Christ. Their faith is more real 
than the dead, ritualistic, concept-only faith that never even gets stirred uh, by going to church, hearing the gospel again and again and again, but sort of the gospel becomes, oh, man, wow. I have heard this so many times in my life. I've heard about Jesus and the cross. I've heard about repentance. I've heard about all of these things we talk about in church. I've heard them a million times. And I can sort of take it or leave it. Okay, that's a dead faith. Uh, but, but the demons of hell, they have a response to faith because they know that the Jesus we are talking about in church every week and, and, the, and this gospel and his death on the cross, they, every time they hear this, they have a response. They shudder. They tremble. They are in terror of the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet, isn't it something how in so many churches across our country, we can have the cross up here, we can have, but our, our faith can become this ritualistic, ceremonial kind of thing that, that it, it comes layers and layers. It just, it sort of obscures the reality around which we gather every time we come together as a church and we sing these songs about no other name like the name of Jesus. And so I guess what, one of the things we can take from this is to make the action step for us would be to determination. Whenever we come together, that we come with hearts that are opened. And then when we open our word in our, in our private lives at home, that we come to the scripture saying, Lord, this is real. This is this is real stuff. This is the most real of all stuff. Open my heart. Touch my life. And never let our faith sort of recede into becoming a dead faith. And that's even a danger for people that have been serving Jesus for years and years and years. It's a danger for preachers because we study the Bible all the time. We're familiar with it. But, but we, I, we all must keep our faith, keep it strong, and rooted in the truth uh, in a realistic way. Now, we're going to get to that in just a second. So we can say this. Demonic faith is both intellectual and emotional. But there's a third kind of faith, and this is where James really want us, wants us to come here this morning. And we could call that dynamic faith. Verse number 20, he says this. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? I think what James is wanting to tell us is that dynamic faith involves the intellect. We sure, we've got to know things up here about who Jesus was. We've got to know his word here and understand it. It involves the emotions. We want to emotionally respond to God's word. But you know what? We, you know, even, even a healthy emotional response to the word of God isn't sufficient. Because we can sing songs like we sang this morning and be deeply emotionally moved, and we should be. But you know what? There's something, there's something deeper where our faith is really going to ignite and, and make a huge difference. And that would be faith has also got to touch our will. Because until something touches our will, the place where we make choices, then there's not going to be any action that comes flowing out of that. So dynamic faith involves the intellect, the emotions, and the will. And dynamic faith is going to lead to action. And then James gives two examples of what he means by dynamic faith. 
in verses 21 uh, through 26. Verse 21, he says this, talking about Abraham, don't you remember our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And you remember the story from Genesis chapter 22 where God spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to take your only son. And he was the son through whom all the promises of the eventual ancestor Jesus himself was going to come. All the people of Israel coming up to Jesus. I want you to take your son whom I've blessed you with in your old age and I want you to take him over there to Mount Moriah and I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Wow. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes right there. Uh, Abraham had followed God for many, many years in his life and come through many obstacles in his life. But have you ever, as a Christian, been following Christ, maybe for years and years, and you come to a certain circumstance or a certain obstacle in your life where, okay, uh, yeah, I, I I don't think I can follow the Lord in this one. I don't see how God can be in can be with me in this situation. I'll bet I'm talking to some people that are there right now. Well, this was a test of faith for Abraham. Now, so what did Abraham do? Well, let's read on. Verse 23, and so it happened just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God. He continued to walk with God in faith even in the most difficult moment he could ever have imagined in his life when he was about to lose what, in terms of what he, possession on earth, what meant most to him, his son. And yet Abraham, Isaac, they make the journey and and they come up and, and they are about ready to, he's about ready to sacrifice Isaac and follow through when God says, stop. I've provided a sacrifice instead. Uh, and so, but Abraham passed the test. And here's what James says about that in verse 23. And so it happened just as the scripture says, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. I want to stop there for one second because there's a little bit of confusion here sometimes. You know, the biggest um, mistake that is out there about how we gain acceptance with God If you ask a lot of people out on the street, when you stand before God someday, what will he say to you about entering into eternal life? What will he say? Well, God will probably say to me, uh, Jim, let me uh, me see both lists in your life. Uh, Let me see how many good things you've done, and let me see the bad things you've done. And if, and the reasoning goes, if the good things I've done is a longer list than the bad things I've done, then God's going to say, hey, Jim, we'll do a high five, okay? And he's going to invite me to come in to eternal life. Uh, But if it's the other way around, then God's going to say, you know what? Uh, You know, yeah, you're, the bad out, the good, the bad outweighed the good, so, Yeah. You can't come in. Uh, But you see, if that's the way we get to heaven, 
If that's the way eternal life happens and we gain acceptance and salvation with God, then what's left out of that picture? We don't need Jesus. I can get there on my own just by being a good person. But we do not gain acceptance with God just by being a good person. The reason is that other list. No matter how many good things we have done, and they could be wonderful things, and those are good things. Don't, I want to take any credit away from those things. But if I'm trying to get to heaven on my own with my own good list, I've still got this other list over here that I'm going to stand before God with. And, and God can't just turn his head the other way and, and pretend I haven't sinned. If he did, he would be compromising his own character. He would be less than good himself. He'd be less than holy. So Jesus saw the dilemma, and he so loved us that he came into the world, and he took upon himself all of our sins, every list. In fact, the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul says, the list of our sins was nailed to the cross, with Jesus. When those nails went into Jesus' hands, those were your sins and mine's being nailed to the cross because Jesus, who never sinned a moment in his life, he lived a perfect life. He qualified to bear our sins. And so when we come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have sinned. I, I thank you for taking my place and, and serving my judgment in place of me. I receive you as my Savior. Come and wash my sins away. Jesus does that. And not only that, he enters in to live inside of our life. His presence becomes a reality deep in our spirit. The power of his life enters into our life and becomes the source, a new source, a new beginning, out of which we go on to live our life. So when we bring this back to what, what James is talking about here, James is not saying that do some good works and it's going to be okay with you and God. No, there's... No, that's not it. We have to know him. We have to know God. Now, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do. In other words, a real faith is going to have evidence of Jesus flowing out of our lives in good works. Now, he goes on and talks here about Rahab in verse 25. Rahab is, another, is his second example. Now, think about this. James is wanting to have two examples to show the power of faith lived out in actions. He chooses Abraham. That makes all the sense in the world because there was no more famous and more, more respected person in all of Jewish history than Abraham. He was the forefather of all. But where does he go for his second example? He goes to Rahab, who was in Jericho and the enemies of God's people. And she was a Gentile. She wasn't even a Jewish person. And she goes, and, and on top of that, she was a prostitute. James says. And so let's read. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God, that she had made her peace with God, that she had repented of her sins. She, but she shows this and demonstrates this by her actions. When she hid those messengers, those spies, and sent them safely away by a different road. So Rahab, something, God did something in her heart. She, she repented. She came to the God of heaven for forgiveness, and then out of that, her whole heart was changed toward these spies. Otherwise, she would have gave them up, but instead she protected them. Uh, and you can read the rest of the story in the book of Joshua. Anyway, 
So you couldn't find two more different persons. Abraham, the godly forefather, Rahab, the prostitute, the Gentile. What did they have in common? They both had genuine faith, real faith, that demonstrated itself by their actions, their obedience, their fearless sacrifice of themselves, even in the face of danger, to take a risk to do the will of God. And that's the calling for every follower of Jesus Christ, to take the risk of faith, to live out the will of God in our messed up world. And they show us that no matter who we are, no matter our past, you can have a dynamic faith in your life. And the amazing thing is that when you read the family tree genealogy of Jesus given by Matthew in chapter 1, both Abraham and Rahab are part of the family tree of Jesus. That's amazing, I think. So what James is saying is that no matter who we are, what our past, anything, you and I can have as much of God in our lives as we want, as we hunger for. He's there. James, in fact, in chapter 4, verse 8 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. The door to living a dynamic life of faith is wide open this morning to every single one of us in this room. It's wide open to living a dynamic life of faith. If we just reach out and and, and take hold of Christ and keep our hearts and minds centered on him and focused on him and in his word, walking with him, trusting him in all the circumstances we face. And you might say this morning, well, I don't think I'm worthy to come to Jesus Christ. I'm not good enough yet. None of us are ever good enough to come to Jesus because we've all sinned. And that's the whole point of his coming. He receives us as we are in order to give us a new beginning in which the power of his own life will come flowing into us and then flowing out from us in great works and great actions of faith. Now, some of you may say, but I am a follower of Jesus this morning and I feel like I've lost my passion to serve. I feel like my passion for people is just sort of dipped. I feel dry. I sort of feel like I'm, I'm dead in my spiritual life. I would just throw out a few questions real quick. Is there a barrier of some sort that's a blockage in your life right now that you need to take a close look at or talk to a close friend about? Is your life in need of balance, coming back and readdressing the balance in your life? Uh, are you burnt out? Are you spending time with him in his word and in prayer? Or are you just going through a time of discouragement, maybe hit with some, some of life's blows, and I just want to remind you that he is there walking with you through those blows. He feels them with you. He feel, feels them even more deeply than you do because he's there to nurture and help you and guide you and pick you up and keep you moving forward. Uh, and he's, he's there to nurture your faith even in the hard times. Um, so the challenge, I'll just wrap it up with this challenge this morning. It's very simple. As followers of Jesus, let's go into our week, into every day this week, praying specifically that God will give us the eyes to see the needs of the people that are around us, and then to take the opportunity to take action, whatever action is appropriate, to try to serve them in whatever way we can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for your word.
And I pray, Lord, that uh, we will learn from James, Lord, who came all the way from skepticism to a powerful faith, Lord, in which he honored you and served you and made such a difference in so many people's lives. And Lord, we may look at James and say, well, he's one of the writers of the Bible, so I'm, I, he's in a different class. Father, the reason why your word was written is to show us that the door for a dynamic faith, the door for a deep relationship with you is wide open to every human being. Your grace flows out freely to all. So Lord, I pray this morning that you'll speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit in these closing moments of this service and that Lord, wherever we are in our faith, young, new, been in the faith a long time, even searching it out, I pray Lord that we will take, all of us take a step forward this morning in faith and Lord that we surrender ourselves so that your, your good works can flow through our lives and, and reach out and impact the lives of those around us. And we give you praise for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.